Welcome to the Missing Maura Murray podcast. I am Tim here today in the Crawl Space Studios with Lance. What's up, Lance? Hey, how's it going? Great. We are bringing you today part one of our live conversation with Art Roderick and Maggie Freeling that happened on Sunday night or Sunday evening in Somerville, Massachusetts's Davis Square, uh, the Rockwell Theater. So we had a great time, and it was such a long event, it turned into a two-hour conversation that we're going to have to break these up into two parts. Yeah, we reserved the theater from uh, the Rockwell, so big shout-out to the Rockwell for um, putting up with us uh, starting at uh, 4.45. We went until... When did we, we, we went and the show started at 6.30. We wrapped up probably around quarter to nine um, because we took some questions at the end, which is going to be in the second part of the, um, you know, this release. But uh, yeah, it was, it was amazing to see everybody who came out. Packed house, um, completely sold out. We had to put up some, uh, some extra chairs in the front and um, everyone welcomed Art and Maggie um, with with the with the the utmost respect and the questions and the uh, the thoughts and all of the topics uh, came in and and I don't know they just it, it felt uh, it felt refreshing. It was a phenomenal night and we just wanted to send a big thanks to everyone who was there and uh, and we just want to play the audio starting from when Maggie and Art came out onto the stage. We'll cut our little intro, uh, Lance, and we'll we'll get right to the meat of this. And uh, so that's really it. And this episode is brought to you by Crawl Space the Podcast. Crawl Space the Podcast for all of your true crime needs delivered by two slightly above good-looking gentlemen. Okay, thank you very much. Here is part one of our conversation with Maggie Freeling and Art Roderick. about the very end of the show because it's it's the elephant in the room to some people I'm sure I don't know about here but at least listening at home so you guys told the Murray family at the end of episode six that there were task forces that were uh, being set up uh, in this case so can we hear a little bit about that because it it came out that the attorney general uh, sort of denied that so yeah what what do you guys make of this I'm going to hand that off to Art, actually, because um, when I saw that Strelzen had said that, I was also confused because we were told this to our face that this was happening. Um, And so my question to Art was, why is Strelzen saying this is not happening and why is he making his guys look bad by saying this isn't happening? For anybody who doesn't know, uh, what was said in the show was that um, it's a new investigation, it's a new task force, pretty much everything is going back to... Um, everything's going, they're going back to the beginning. They're re-interviewing people. They're going back to uh, the sources and they're sort of rejuvenating the case. And then there became this miscommunication about, is this a new investigation? Right. So this yeah. is, this is what we're addressing here. And that was me stalling while we got a mic that worked. Yeah. And I think that's exactly, <laughs> that's exactly why I think the attorney general is probably upset because it, it came out uh, in the press or actually on the website for oxygen that they're reopening the case 
which infers that the case was closed at one time, and it never was closed. Uh, they've investigated this case from day one, and they've treated it as a criminal case, which is kind of unusual considering they don't have a body and this is a missing person. But there's also a, a, a distinguishing factor between investigators and prosecutors. Um, I was an investigator almost 40 years now. I worked on mainly cold cases, and uh, I only went to the attorneys when I absolutely had to. Um, I'm sure a lot of you have had contact with attorneys out there, and sometimes it can be quite taxing. And uh, we would only go to them if we needed a subpoena or a search warrant or were getting ready to arrest somebody for a prosecution. And a lot of times the prosecutors don't have to know exactly what's happening on a day-to-day basis within any type of task force. And I think that's probably what you have here. I mean, we were literally told to our faces that they are re-examining the case. And listen, I've done many of these cases, and you constantly re-examine. I'm I'm still working on the Alcatraz escape case from 1962, and I can't tell you how many times I've gone back and looked at the original case files uh, from the FBI and the Bureau of Prisons. It's just what you do in the normal course of business when you have a cold case. You always go back to the beginning, you re-examine it, and it's kind of like a roller coaster, I mean, because you've got good days and bad days, and on these types of task forces that you, that you put together, you bring people in, and then people go back. It's not like law enforcement has thousands and thousands of police officers out there. There's always other cases. There's cases that are hot. There's cases that are important. So these, these, these task forces tend to ebb and flow with personnel. But this was different, though, because yeah. they didn't have a reason to go back in and redo everything. Right. So that was kind of what we were able to accomplish with the show and the attention that it was getting, being right. a national show. They were able to go back in and re-interview people, have reason to do that. Am I correct in yeah, saying no, that? No, that's exactly right. right. You have to have a reason to... Right to renew the case or re-examine the case, and in this particular case... With those case, resources into it. With those it. resources, yes. because you just can't put, keep putting resources into something when there's no leads to be investigated. And a case can go cold in a week. It can go cold in a couple months. It can go cold in a year. It's when you run out of actionable leads is when the case goes cold. This case has been a cold case since February of 2004, so, and it has gone up and down. Um, and I think probably what we're talking about here with the Attorney General's office is more semantics than, yeah. than anything else. Right, because the headline was not correct, which had right. nothing to do with us. It, it slipped through the cracks. I mean, the oxygen headline. The oxygen said headline that the, said the case was being reopened. Right, right, which doesn't make any sense because it has never been closed. It was closed. never closed. Yeah. Sure. Right. But the fact that all of this is happening otherwise should not be overlooked because of a, a faulty headline. Right. The show did some good. I mean, that's 100% certain, I think. It's hard to deny that. Well, from the very beginning, I'll tell you, the state police knew that they were going to have to beef up and get ready for the leads coming in. I mean, that's just the normal course of the way it goes. I can go all the way back to America's Most Wanted um, when we used to profile fugitives on America's Most Wanted, and we always brought in more people to help with the leads that would come in. So this is just what happens in the normal course of of re-examining and looking at a cold case. 
That's uh, that's interesting. It goes into one of my questions pretty nicely. Um, that's just the course of re-examining and uh, and looking into a cold case. What's your thoughts on the um, the crowdsourcing and the web sleuthing and the citizen detecting? Um, where does it? I'm, I don't know about. I'm assuming that a percentage of this audience would consider themselves a, a web sleuth or a citizen detective. Um, can can each of you provide just from your experience with this some advice? Um, I don't know. Yeah. One of you can do it, and then the other one can do it. But just some advice to yeah. Go ahead. And it's, it's, you. It is something that we address quite a bit because you do yeah. hold this amazing, newfounded responsibility. If you're if you're taking on this citizen detecting, it is yes. a bit of a responsibility. Yeah. I mean. I think something I had said before was misconstrued, that I think that uh, citizen detectives and web sleuths are terrible. I don't even remember what the quote that that was taken out of context. (laughs) Um, That is absolutely not what I think at all. I think everything you guys do is amazing. Um, I probably talked to a few of you. You send leads, great stuff. It is so, so helpful. I think what is hurtful is when people put things out there that are fact that are not fact and that's hearsay and it's been hearsay for the past 13 years and it's it's continually getting pushed and then when we have come out and actually debunked theories and have said you know right. this police conspiracy theory it would have to be so deep yeah. and just so complicated and extensive that it, it it's hurtful when people can't let go of these things that are just um, really not plausible. Uh, I think that was what was taken out of context. I think everything armchair detectives do is amazing. It is amazing, and it is helpful. It's when people get stuck in their ways and can't think outside of their own beliefs and start pushing things that are not true. Uh, Web sleuthing has solved actually a lot of cases. And uh, I think law enforcement is very thankful for that because they can't be everywhere and do everything all the time. And, we know uh, that they are. They've said right. that they're, they're, it's helpful. It's helpful. Uh, but along with the good, there comes the bad. And the bad can be a real pain in the ass. And it takes time and effort and energy for law enforcement to go out and look at these theories. And they look at everything. I can't tell you that we, while we were filming the show, we actually had a couple leads that came directly to us we passed them on, and the next day they were there doing interviews. So um, they're on top of it. Um, in Everything this you guys case, pass along, they yeah, they, they look jump at on. It. They jump on. Yeah, they, they do. jump right on it. And I think that was the most hurtful in this: is some of these facts that are not facts turning the community against the police, and then right. making it so they can't work together has been really hurtful to this investigation. It makes people fearful to go to the police and pass this information on, which is sad because that's really where it's got to go. I mean, we're private citizens. I'm a private citizen now. We're all private citizens here. The reality of it is we have no right whatsoever to any of the information that the police have in their criminal file. And they have to they have to they have a very delicate balance they have to weigh out there. They have to be able to realize what information they can release. Okay, what's gonna solve this case without giving away everything that they have in their file because they're gonna need that specific information to determine if somebody's telling them the truth or not. Or they're gonna need it for the prosecution. So it's a very delicate balancing act that they have to that they have to do. 
So how often do, or does someone from the cold case unit speak with the Attorney General, Jeff Strelzen, or anyone from his department? Well, it's based on, you know, what's happening with the case. I know for this particular case, when we started this, we spent hours with both law enforcement and the Attorney General's office talking to them and, and you know, building trust between both of us. And, and, and uh, I think whenever anything is, is hot or they have a good lead, they'll let the AG's office know. But I can tell you this probably months and months and months go by without them having a conversation about Maura Murray. How hot is the case right now as opposed to when you started filming the show? It's definitely hot right now. I mean, I can't tell you. I've, I probably talk to the New Hampshire State Police cold case unit three to four times a week, uh, just passing leads on and them, them also telling me, hey, we're out. We're doing leads every single day. You know, we have new people that have come in to look at the case, which is always good. It's always good to have a new set of eyes take a look at the case from the very beginning because somebody might have a different idea. But it's, it's probably the hottest it's, it's ever been right now. That's pretty remarkable then that, that yeah. they're working on it daily because uh, it, things that I've learned about cold cases is that that's not, that's not the way it goes. Right, and I think that's what the, that was the accomplishment of this show. Right. They knew as soon as we started doing this that they had to get everything together and get this in motion because it was going to be national and it was going to be explosive and people were going to be coming forward. And, you know, before it was released, they said, you know, we're getting everything together, we're ready for it. Like, they were bracing themselves for the influx of leads. leads And I was getting 30 to 40 emails, messages a day. um, And it was amazing. And it's helpful to the police. Like, I appreciated people sending them to me so I could go through them, call you guys, talk to people, and then pass Mm -hmm. it on to the police, which was really helpful for them. Um, And I also love when people would send things and say, hey, I don't know if this is really helpful. This is something really silly, but I'm just letting you know. Those are the things that sometimes in the end wind up being really right. helpful. You, usually those are more important than the ones that come forward that Absolutely. you know, literally you know. say, I know the answer. And, <laughs> um, but the ones that come forward and they say, this is, this is a small thing that I discovered here with something that's in the, uh, the dispatch log. You know, right. Did you look at this? Yeah. And then they send an email with a little screenshot of that, and it makes you think. And yeah. then you can get back to them and, and say one way or another, you know, usually it's we can't tell you what it is because it goes to law enforcement. Right. And usually, usually that, that satisfies their, their, you know, they'll move on to the next, the next little element, the next little like puzzle piece for them. Right. Exactly. And it's, it's also, it's not like they're calling Maggie and I and letting us know every day what's going on in the case. They're not doing that. Don't get that impression. Um, we're passing leads on, they're investigating them and whatever conclusion they come to, they come to, but they're never going to let us know. Uh, they have promised that if they do come across something that that uh, where they think they're going to come to a conclusion to the case, they're gonna they're gonna call us and let us know. And of course, they're gonna call a family. Um, you know, they have a uh, I think a, a fairly decent relationship now with Fred and with Julie and Kurt and Fred Jr. and Kathleen. And I think they're working to make that better. I think initially there were some issues, personality issues between. Uh, Fred and one of the investigators that was originally assigned to the case. But, um, I mean, one of the first conversations we had with the attorney general was They said that that they want to mend that relationship. It's it's different people now. So everyone has really come together to try and solve this, and that's that's the 
main right. point of it. Now, the two of you got involved in the case um, about two years ago, right? It'd be about two years now? Year probably and, two years, maybe yeah, two a year years. and a half ago for me. So I know that you came into the case knowing that there was this immense online activity. And, um, and, and it was it, it's essentially, the, like we say, it's the first missing person or unsolved, the first cold case of the, of the social network era. Yeah. Um, were you surprised at all when you realized that you had to first like dig through all of that, like clear out all of that noise in order to even see like where to look in the first place? Was that surprising to you how much there was? I think it wasn't surprising until afterwards. Because yeah. during it, we really were just looking at the facts. Like we were starting from scratch, looking at facts, the two of us interviewing people, doing our own stuff. And then after the show came out is when I started realizing how big that online presence was. I'm not a Redditor. I'm not a blogger. I don't read those things. But after the show, I've been sucked in by even texting with you guys. Like, hey, have you seen what this person said? And it's just like, wow, I didn't realize how big that community was until after the show, I think. So you were wallowing in the mire? Afterwards, yes. Oh my God. This, okay. this is the. And it, Art's still not in it. So yeah. He just yeah. hears about it from me. I do. Luckily, I don't have any social media, so I don't get all the stuff Maggie gets. But you are really lucky. Yeah, I know. It's, no, no. it's mind-boggling it, from the stuff I've seen that you yeah. guys get. If anybody wants Art's number, on the way out, he will. Send We're going to flash it up on the screen yeah. right here. Yeah. Live, just, live updates. Yeah. Just take a picture and tweet it. <laughs> no, just kidding. It's a uh, joke. Yeah. <laughs> no, and the and the Facebook groups are really great. There's just a vocal minority that uh, yes. that are uh, slightly aggressive, or maybe not even slightly, um, and it's a little abusive at times. But they're getting taken out. I mean, if you start getting abusive yeah. on the pages, I mean, I've seen the moderators be like, "We have no tolerance for right. this anymore. There shouldn't be tolerance for that. We all have the same mission. We right. all want the same thing. There's no reason to be getting." Uh, offensive and aggressive to people and and I've talked to some of the moderators who have reached out to me and said you know this is crazy we've had to delete more people than ever because people can't play nice anymore and I don't know what did that I mean when you when you look at all this stuff that's out there I constantly remind everybody I go you have to ask yourself one question how does that get us to what happened to Maura Murray and if it doesn't get us to that question then why even deal with it Okay, a lot of people have these side theories, but I'm, uh, and I keep coming back to it. I go, well, how does that get us to what happened tomorrow? Because you can waste a lot of time going through a thousand rabbit holes and that have nothing to do with what gets you to what happened tomorrow, Murray. And that's what I think I said that got misconstrued. I think that web sleuthers are amazing and are helpful, yeah. and, but it's when it's so sidetracked and so out there that it's not helpful and it gets in the weeds and those are the people that do get angry and aggressive and offensive to others yeah logic over emotion i think right yeah and uh, and it's tough because the people who are emotional about it it all comes from a really good place they all want something to happen in this case something positive they want resolution but they just don't know how to handle their emotions when it comes to it and you said something uh maggie about the um the reasoning, right? The reasoning behind if you're being attacked and you and Art are being attacked for, um, for lying for the network or lying to 
you know, uh, I would make, never make, lie for a network. Right. By the way, that's crazy. But I don't get paid enough for that. So. But you know, you get a, you get attacked, and this is where the logic comes in. You get attacked, and you're you're told that you're part of this big mass conspiracy. And you you told me earlier. You said, just why? why? So I, I explain well, this because you did a really good job with it. I think you know Art and I have been talking too, and this is our career and our livelihood and I am a trained professional journalist and he is a 40 year law enforcement veteran who is still working for CNN and doing all this stuff this is our livelihood so for us to lie nationally for a network puts us in jeopardy Why? what do we have to gain from that and I think when information is put out there on the blogs and the pages and Twitter I think people really have to think, where is this coming from? Does this person have as much to lose as Art and I have our jobs? If I lost my job, I mean, I, that's it. That's the end if I wasn't a journalist anymore. Um, so do these people who are saying these things that are their fact and Maggie and Art are lying and they're part of this conspiracy and the police did this and people take it for fact, I mean, these people can lie. Are they being held to the same accountability standards that Art and I are. And I think that's really important to think about is who is saying what and what are their motives and what do they have to lose? There, there, there was a lot of things they wanted us to do that we just said, right. no, Art and I are, are certainly that. not you know, yeah, lying not or pawns that. for the network at right. all. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and you know, the, the, the other thing too is, I mean, it's a TV show, so there has to be some kind of entertainment in it for for people to keep watching to get to our point again as to what happened to Maura Murray. Okay, so some of it is Hollywood sure, is up what a we fought about yeah, a lot which, of the time. I said, right. this is really crazy. This is really yeah. sensational. Right. I'm a serious journalist. Artist, a law enforcement agent. Like, right. And they'd say, look, we got to get people to watch it. And right. people right. did watch it, though. They did. And, it, yeah. and, it, and it's, it was, for the six hours everybody saw out there, if, if you did watch the show, I'm sure so, most of you did, um, there was 300 hours of just filming us to get those six hours. The interviews that we did, we, we did probably around 100 interviews. Uh, everybody was interviewed for an average of an hour to an hour and a half. So all you saw was a quick... Some were, th- some were three. There was a lot of three yeah, hours. Yeah, there was yeah, three hours. Or, um, yeah, most three law enforcement half, were hours. about three hours. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, you have to cut it down. And, and I remember when we started it, we were concerned... We weren't going to have enough material for six hours, and we ended up cutting out a lot of stuff, unfortunately. Yeah, and you got a ton of extras on the uh, Oxygen um, website. Um, That that brings me to uh, the interview. One of the the best parts of the show, uh, at least for me, like top five parts of the show, was when you interviewed Jeff Williams and uh, Cecil or Cecil Smith. Right. And... um, and you can talk to us a little bit about, the, about that because there's, there's, you know, you see like 20 minutes of an interview. Yeah, right. is it Cecil? I, who kn- I don't know. Yeah, I think That's it is so. Cecil. That's it's what I want to know. It's absolutely Cecil. <laughs> it is Cecil. Okay. It's yeah. Cecil. Thank you. I, I think I called him Cecil, so. All right, thank you, everybody. We'll <laughs> see you next time. <laughs> who is a very nice man. Yeah, he is. Yeah, I, we were, you know, again, you only saw a couple of minutes, but we spent a lot of time with the law enforcement People and, he, and one of the odd things was um, Jeff Williams, who was the chief of police uh, in Haverhill at the time, had come up to us probably in week two or three of shooting and wanted to be interviewed. They all wanted to they be interviewed. They all wanted to talk. It was amazing. They just wanted to get it 
all out. Because as a law enforcement officer, you can't defend yourself in the public, okay? Usually there's a gag order. The U.S. Attorney's Office or the District Attorney's Office doesn't want you talking about the case. You are literally hung out there to dry, and you have no way to defend yourself until it comes to, you know, if you're going to court or something. So it's, it's a tough position that law enforcement is in because they really can't defend themselves. And these, these law enforcement officers, I mean, were absolutely chomping at the bit to talk to us. Um, I just wanted to ask about the sort of uh, this slight sensationalism that comes with a TV show like this. Like, we know that it happens. You know, they told us very early on that that's what happens. Um, and, and they said it's about, it's about finding answers, but, you know, there's a little bit in there, a little bit for entertainment purposes. Right. What, do, what do the Murrays think about that, and how do they feel about the show? I mean, obviously they knew that because they got the same speech that we got. Right. But what, how do they feel about the show now? And Art's more in touch with them. I talk to Julie sometimes on Facebook, but you're very close with Fred. Um, I think they're happy with it. I think they're really happy with how everything turned out. Um, We have a good relationship with them. Their relationship with the police has started to mend. I think they all feel really good about it. They do. I mean, you know, you spend five minutes with Fred Murray, and you can't help but feel for him, for the family. I mean... He, within five minutes, he'll tell you, I'm just trying to do everything I can do to find my daughter before I die. And Fred is in his, I think, mid-70s now at this point. And uh, you can see it in his face. And I think you saw it at the very end of the show in episode six. He, every single time. I mean, he'll come in with a list of everything he wants to get out. And we're like, Fred, we're going to interview you four more times. You'll get it all out. You'll get what you can say. You know, we, we want you to put out as much information as you can. And, it's, and it was pretty cool seeing the family interaction with Kurt and Julie and uh, Fred Jr., um, you know, when they were all together. And, uh, you know, you just, you just got a feel for him. This is a guy that's just trying to find his daughter. And not to be uh, devil's advocate, but um, one part of the show that uh, one member of the show wasn't thrilled with was uh, Kathleen and uh, and the interview where her body language was being analyzed in the next room, and she wasn't aware of that, and she came out publicly, well, over social media, and said, um, you know, just expressed how she felt like she was kind of done wrong. Um, can you talk about that a little bit, about how that all went down? How did you find yeah, out about that? And Yeah, started. I found that quite odd, because the cameras were right there in front of her face. I don't, I don't know what she was surprised about. Um, she knew we were in the other room watching. I mean, that's how we did all the interviews. So I, I think Kathleen is susceptible to people putting thoughts or information into her head. I mean, you know, I don't want to get into her personal life, um, but she does have some uh, dependence issues. Um, and I think very possibly somebody might have got to her and said, oh, that was horrible. Um, but she knew what was going on the whole time. That was that was not I mean, it, any cover up. We tried to. I, we we didn't love that, as you guys know. I mean, yeah. you knew as it was happening. I was texting you guys like I'm so pissed about this, but right. it happened. Mm-hmm. And in post, you know, we worked with it as best we could. To I think the whole point of it was people had been talking and you guys know that Kathleen is a liar. Kathleen knows all this information. She's withholding information. And our purpose was 
to kind of say, no, she's not. We had talked to her. We knew she wasn't. Right. And I think I, you know, people even on the thread when she had posted, she was upset about it. Understandable, you're upset. I get you, girl. I feel you. I would be upset too. But then people were like, but you looked good. She did look good. And that's what we were happy with in the end. Even though that happened, we weren't happy it happened. In the end, we didn't make her look like yeah. a monster. Or the, the editors did not make her look like a monster. And I think she looked truthful, right. which I sat in a room with her for almost four hours. Right. That was a four-hour-long interview. Yeah. And I did not think Kathleen Murray was lying to me. And I had no idea what Art and Evie were saying on the other side, but I'm glad they came to the same conclusion. The, the whole point of the interview and why we had Evie Pomparis there from the Secret Service or former Secret Service, sometimes people don't know what they know. And our whole point of doing that particular interview was figuring out what the phone call was all about that upset Mora two days before she ended up going missing. And we found out exactly what that phone call was about. That was the purpose of that whole interview. And we didn't it took think three she was and lying. A half we hours. thought right. she something happened that seemed so normal to her, but right. actually was very upsetting to Mora. Right. It was our theory the whole time. She, Kathleen's not lying. She doesn't know what she knows. Right. And that's exactly why we had the expert there to help us. And at first, uh, you know, when you first see it, and anyone who hasn't seen this this part, it was uh, Evie Pomporis uh, was analyzing Kathleen Murray's body language. And you see it at first, and you think it's this technique by a network to make it sensationalized, but it would have been weirder if you didn't do that as an investigation. Right. Kathleen, there's direct information that Mora gave possibly gave to Kathleen during that phone call that needed to be talked about. And Kathleen had never done an interview before like that. And it just seemed like the responsible thing for an investigation to, to analyze her body language. And when, when I started thinking about that, I was like, oh, this is, well, this is great. And right after the episode came out, I called Art and said, have you talked to Fred? Are they upset? I mean, they all sat together every night watching every episode. They were together watching it all. Right. Um, sometimes Julie would message me afterwards and say, hey, this, thank you, this is a good episode. But that one we didn't hear from them. And I called Art and said, have you talked to the family? What did they think about this one? Are they pissed about it? And what did they tell you? No, they were fine with it. I think, you know, it, at one point, Fred had actually, we had heard that Fred actually tried to get a hypnotist to hypnotize Kathleen to, to take her back to that time frame to figure out exactly what had happened. I don't think that ever happened, but... Even Fred, I think, even the family realized that maybe Kathleen knew something that she didn't think was important. I, I, it's, um, and and uh, I'll tell you, if it, if it was like a law enforcement setting, you never want to do an interview in a bedroom and have somebody I mean, sitting yeah, in a bed across the room. It was terrible. It was very it was uncomfortable to sit there for four hours. I mean, we were in this very seedy hotel. They thought we were shooting pornography. They did, they did. In the room, and we're like, oh my gosh, what are they going to do, charge us more here? <laughs> Um, so it was kind of a bizarre setup. The it whole was thing bizarre, was. and they yeah. really did. They saw Evie, this like beautiful blonde woman in her yeah. stilettos, knocking yeah. on the door, and they were like, are you, "What are you guys doing in there?" Um, <laughs> Is it okay if we shoot? Yeah, we shoot it was. I, they, uh, but no, it was because Kathleen didn't want us at her home, and it's a very rural area yeah. of Vermont. So you know, people also think that we put Kathleen in this. Like, we didn't think that highly of her. 
find a classy hotel up in that area. I mean, it's not, you know, yeah, like... There's not many hotels well, in What are you saying about there's, Vermont? There's, there's not, no, there's I'm, not, not saying, I'm just saying it was a very rural oh. area. Social we media like, goes wild. Okay, okay. Now, what, first web sleuths and now people from Jeez, Vermont. Jeez, Maggie. We love Vermont. <laughs> the green state. Vermont. <laughs> no, this is northern Vermont. This is like... No, this was like border of yeah, Canada. Very, there, yeah. was, there was not much there's there. Not much going in fact, on. our cell so. phone said, welcome to Canada, right? Yes. When we got up there. Yes. So we had to find the closest place, and producers picked this spot. So I, I know that uh, debunking these sort of web theories is, is probably a little bit frustrating for you guys to continuously do this throughout the course of the show. Um, and I, but you did. You, you did it. And I, I guess my question is, like, did law enforcement learn anything from you guys debunking these things? Like, did, did they take anything from this show? Other than the new task forces and, and movement behind the scenes that has been more than uh, recent. Yeah, I, when we started this, the first thing we looked at is there was, there was groups of individuals out there, family members, law enforcement, uh, podcasters, that's us. Uh, the press. Um, there was also private investigators. There was different groups of people out there, and nobody was talking to one another. And the first thing we looked at is coming in and sort of being the hub and talking to all these different groups and pulling all the information together. So law enforcement did learn a lot from from a lot of the debunk. They they were very thankful that we were able to get out there and debunk a lot of this stuff so that they could get to the facts. And I mean, I can't tell you how many times. The AG's office, Jeff Strelzen, would just say, just get me to the facts. Just get me facts and evidence. That's all I'm looking for, facts and evidence, facts and evidence. And, and that was his mantra through the whole thing. And, and I think we were able to get through a lot of, a lot of debunking that, that you know, got us down to the facts. And we're just hoping somebody makes that phone call. That Speaking of uh, Jeff Strelzen, did you? I know the show presented it as uh, he, he sat in with the interviews um, yes. with uh, Cecil Smith and Jeff Williams. Mm-hmm. They they sort of made it seem like that was a, a, a strange thing to do. It like was he's not being, strange, yeah. and I, I did not like that. Yeah. I had to say that, but it's not weird. Yeah. It's no. very normal. Why why is it not weird? It it. it it's an open criminal case for them. So, I mean, we actually had to go through the AG's office to get approval to talk to anybody from law enforcement. And again, we're, we're into that investigators versus um, prosecutors. And, and I think, you know, I think they feel very confident that they're going to solve this. And that's the reason why they're being very careful about who says what to who out there. Well, and also, so... As many people have talked about on the forums, um, we did have to send over a list of questions or a line of questioning beforehand, and they were like, fine, great, normal stuff. Um, And then at one point in one of the interviews, Stralzen did hop up and was like, whoa, 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 you've asked way, way we're getting way off. And I I don't... Yeah, I I, I said to him, I said, uh, you know... Jeff, we've we've come across a lot more information right. at this point. And then in time. I was like, "Look, I'm going to continue with my question, and, and if you don't like it, stop me." Yeah. And then you never stopped me. He, he never just stopped. let us keep fine. going. Yeah. What was it going. that they got him? It was not uneasy. anything. Yeah, it was, it was nothing, nothing uneasy. It was like it was just something that it wasn't been, listed. Was it Jeff Williams' interview? It might, or Cecil's interview? No, it was Monahan. It was. Was yeah, it Monahan? Was Williams? Maybe. Yeah. It was Williams. Yeah, but no, they. He did try to stop us one time. And 
then I was like, let me just finish this question. If you don't like it, you can shut it down. And I asked the question and just kept going. And it kept going. It kept okay. going. I, mean, it, it I think he just wanted to like make his... Right. His this is not known. what you were allowed. <laughs> just letting you know you're not allowed to do this. And I mean, a lot, of, a lot of this is just common sense. What makes sense? I mean, one of the things we found out was you heard one of the neighbors talk about law enforcement having this jurisdictional argument out in the driveway. Okay. Well, we come to find out it wasn't law enforcement. It was the two tow truck drivers arguing over who was going to get the 100 bucks for the tow. So it wasn't the police because the state... Uh, st- we Monaghan, did ask Monaghan that, right. and he was like, I didn't. I swung he by for like, two minutes I was there and said, for, hey, you need help. I didn't help? even get out of the car. Yeah. He said, he, I just drove by and continued to look down the road for somebody walking down the highway. Now, concerning the elements of the case, I, I don't know if we've asked you this before when we've talked to you in right. other uh, podcasts, but um, what were some of the biggest disagreements between the two of you? Did you ever have a moment where you were one way and you were another way? I think initially with Karen McNamara, maybe. But I don't even think we... I don't think we ever disagree. It was weird, though, because we're so different, but we never disagreed. Yeah. I think well, then Karen... talk about your differences. Yeah. <laughs> I think Karen McNamara, we kind of went a little bit back and forth on... Well, art doesn't love witness testimony, which any law enforcement agent doesn't, and it's proven that witness testimony is not the most reliable. So we just went back and forth talking about, you know, is this reliable? What did she see? And we did have a real aha moment that didn't make it in the show when we did the drive, backtracked her time, got to the crimes... accident site from Beaver Pond right. and said, holy crap. She saw she Cecil saw Smith. <laughs> Cecil Smith. She saw what she saw. Like right. we were, and then Art was like, hey, she's a credible witness. And yeah. we both, she's a credible witness. So this is witness A that we're talking about. Right. Uh, the account that she saw, police SUV 001 nose to nose with Morris Saturn right. um, at a time, was it 737? It was about, so it was about 10, yeah. Art and I arrived about 10 minutes before Cecil called in. Okay. So instead of instead of the show saying that's not true, they actually said she's 100% right. Yes. Right. Um, and, and law enforcement confirmed that Cecil was driving SUV 001. Why has there been such confusion over this? Um, I think there's certain people out there that want to keep this police conspiracy thing alive, and that's one way of doing it. Um, I also think probably law enforcement knew very early on after they interviewed Karen McNamara, okay, yeah, she saw 001, she saw Cecil Smith. And for them, that was the end of it. But this stuff started exploding online and developing into this huge you know, police conspiracy thing. And one of the first things we said to law enforcement at Distrelzen is we want to put this, figure out what, you know, what happened here and put this particular issue to bed. And we right. were able to do that. Because a few months ago, if you had told me and Lance that 001, the SUV, was really there, and Karen McNamara's, what she said she saw. I remember when I told you guys that. Real. I called you, and yeah. you guys were like, shit. We, well, we were like, so that means Jeff Williams you know, was, was there and, and you know, did something awful? And, uh, and it turns out that's not, it doesn't seem like the case. Yeah. So wh- what's the story about SUV 001 being off? Uh, off the road or out of commission that night. Do you guys know anything about that? It's an urban myth. Okay. That yeah. was that. That none of that information none of that is anywhere that is traceable. 
uh, to a person, to facts. That is something that has been passed around, as you guys know, for a decade. Yeah, there's a, there's, a, there's a picture out there when you, if you were to like Google search this, um, there's there what looks like a police SUV with 001 looking completely broken down in some sort of garage. And, and you end up making the connection, right? And now it's this urban myth. I just want to say one thing that's really cool is when people, when you said, this is Witness A, Karen, watching people nod was really cool. Let people know, people know now. And She's an amazing woman, yeah, too. She, I mean, she, she didn't want to be Witness A. She, she just wanted want to be Karen McNamara. The poor woman, yeah. I mean. <laughs> yeah, oh. they gave her that moniker and, and um she was like, I'm, I'm just telling you what I saw. Right. I'm just Karen. I'm just Karen, yeah. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I know. And, it, and it all makes sense. She says that she doesn't see anybody at the cars because they're, I mean, if you take it, at, if you take everything in this case at face value, what people say, it, it all lines up. There was nobody at the car because there was a police officer first, in his right. car well, and no, Maura was One gone. of the first things he told us was the first thing he did was went and knocked on the Westman's door. Yeah. He, he Karen was drove for by her. when he was yeah. at the Westman's house. Right. Of course he wasn't at his car. He's knocking on the doors of the neighbors like he's supposed to be doing. So what about the time discrepancy in, in the logs based on the time Cecil Smith was supposed to have arrived based on the time Karen McNamara was supposed to have driven by the SUV wasn't supposed to be there at that time? What do you guys make of that? Yeah, I mean, the, the discrepancy is probably pretty easily cleared up i mean cecil's if you watch it and i don't know if it even made it into the show but when we interviewed cecil cecil says the first thing i did is get out of the cruiser because i thought somebody was gonna was hurt so you said cruiser art yeah i know i did it's a conspiracy he's in on it yeah i'm in the conspiracy Uh, the first thing he did is get out of the suv and approach the vehicle to make sure there was nobody in there that was hurt i mean and that's what Police officers do. I mean, I, I worked in a small town for three years as a patrolman, and you come across abandoned vehicles all the time. Um, uh, and, and I think that's exactly what they thought they had, an abandoned vehicle. But there was a report that there was a female there that had, um, that had been at the vehicle, and I think Cecil was there t- just to make sure nobody was hurt, nobody was injured inside the car. And then he immediately, as you always do, go to the 911 caller. And we had two 911 callers. You had Butch Atwood 100 yards down the road, and you had Faith Westman um, and her husband, which were only about 40 feet, 50 feet from the accident scene, looking out their window. Um, I want to ask the audience, though, and definitely no judgment, because honestly, I think people should be skeptical. Everyone should be skeptical. It's my job as a journalist is to be skeptical. Um, and not, and even not even believe everything you know that we say unless we yeah. show documentation. But how many people do still believe that the police were involved? Got a hand over here. Got, got a hand over here. Okay, that's good. Okay, I we mean, got a few hands. Two or three. I, there, you know, it should. I mean, people should still press on it. Yes. Everything should be questioned. But the problem again, the problem is people being bullies and then people being curious and questioning. So definitely keep questioning. Just don't be a bully. Right. And, yeah. and there will be a, a segment at the end here where you can ask your questions. Um, if, you, if you want a mic, let us know. We'll run the mic over to you. But, uh, yeah, this is a perfect forum to, to directly ask. Yeah. And thank you for and, raising your hand. The yeah. officers in the crowd will escort you out now. <laughs> <laughs> You've now been identified. <laughs> 
You're out of here. Um, so uh, James Renner, of course, is... Uh, is, is, is in a, the house, ladies and gentlemen. He's in the house! <laughs> just, no, kidding. Just, just kidding. Just oh kidding. Some people just actually thought that was real. <laughs> uh, J- James Renner is a, uh, is a popular blogger. He uh, wrote a book called True Crime Addict uh, about the Maura Murray case, about his investigation into the Maura Murray case. Um, he... Uh, was pretty convinced that Maura Murray ran away um, before the show starts. Before the show started, and he sort of changed up his theory at this point. It seems like um, because these new allegations about Maura's ex-boyfriend have kind of come about, and he's kind of publicized it more than he ever has before, and he's kind of going straight towards this theory. Yeah. So, how do you guys feel about this new development since the show has wrapped? How does that get us to what happened to Maura Murray, period? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you know, he might have issues, but really, what has that got to do with what happened to Maura? Uh, there's, there's, he's absolutely has an alibi as to where he was at that point in time. Um, so whatever he's doing in his personal life or he has done, if it's got nothing to do with Maura, then, you know, it, that's James's thing. You know, James likes but doing that I do think stuff. he has taken that role on, which, yeah. good for him. If he wants to expose Bill for being a, a abuser or whatever, great. But it's, sep- it's separate right. from Mora. Right. You know, that's, these two things are not related, yeah. and conflating them is another distraction. Well, that's actually what I was going to get at, because he is, he is putting them together. Um, so he, he recognizes that, that Bill has an alibi for February 9th, 2004. Right. Mm-hmm. But I, I believe he is kind of leaning towards potentially in the days after Bill might have met up with Mora and done something horrible. Listen, I've talked to the family, specifically Julie, about that issue. And Julie is very, at best, ambivalent about how she feels about Bill. I mean, you know, there was some issues going on. They had a shaky relationship, Mora and Bill, but... Julie is like, there's no way. He was with myself or Fred every single day. So it it just doesn't match up with the facts. And I know James tends to draw, make conclusions without having all the facts, which is fine. At least he's open enough to change his theory, and I give him a lot of credit for that. Um, but, I mean, you got to have all the facts before you come to a to a solid conclusion like he tends to do. He did write a great book called The Man from Primrose Lane which is complete fiction so pick that one up I like I liked um, that one but uh, I, I guess just following up real quick so uh, the a lot of James's theory is based on Bill Roush's cell phone records and Mora's yes. cell phone records and is this something that would have been subpoenaed by law enforcement did they see the entire cell phone record yes they did. Yeah. I mean, when you, and that's the other thing that probably is not really made public. I mean, they convened a couple grand juries, and grand juries are a great way to investigate a case. You don't have to indict somebody every time in a grand jury. You can go to the grand jury and ask them for a subpoena for certain records, and that's what happened in this case. Um, uh, there's, there's, there's another form of subpoena out there called administrative subpoena, where that. Uh, Marshals have it for sex offender cases. Uh, FBI has it. DEA has it. And it's to get records without going before a U.S. attorney or a judge. And it's very helpful 
in these types of cases. So when you issue a grand jury to a phone company, they have a whole special section in every one of the major phone companies around the country that does nothing but gather these records together, looks at the, looks at the order, see how it's written, and then pulls those records together and gives them to law enforcement. It happens day in, day out. Uh, all the time on all these cases. Even in a missing persons case when it's not technically a criminal case that we know of? I know they kind of treated it it that way. It's it's because it's from the grand jury. It doesn't make any difference to the phone company. It's it's an order to produce those those particular records. So whatever they asked for, they got, I'm sure they got all 10 pages or whatever it was. Yeah, it was like 25 pages or something like that. I'm sure they got all, they got it. They got all that. I can't imagine a phone company not providing that information because they would be before a judge answering. Okay. So, and, and did you just last question? Did, and did you talk to the cold case unit about specific, like that specific missing page in air quotes? I did not talk to them specifically about that, but I did ask them, did you get all the phone records? And they said yes. So, okay. um, you know, those records, that, and I, James did get it, put together a lot of good information. Um, and we used a lot of it. We've said that before. Right. We probably wouldn't be here if right. it were not for his. He did collect a his lot of own things. investigation. Right. He's the one that discovered the credit card fraud and all right. of those things. That if it weren't for him, we it wouldn't. You know, we wouldn't have that. But the records that he got were from Bill's mother, so it wasn't like it was some official order. So if she wanted to withhold a page, it was well within her rights to withhold a page of those records. So and we're talking about a page that is supposedly the roaming charges on, right. on his cell phone record. It, it, it's actually Mora's roaming calls. Mora's roaming calls. Yeah. Yeah. We do have Bill's roaming calls, but not technically Mora's. So I guess the, the implication was maybe Mora answered the phone call and Sharon, Bill's mom, knew about that and withheld that page. That was the implication. It's a yeah. good thought. Like that's, that's, that's It jump. is thinking outside the box, but... Yeah. It's as a heck soon of a as you jump, know that they no... probably yeah you got to have facts you got to have facts to point to that I mean that's just it's a heck of a jump I'd like to talk a little bit about unless we want to go on about I'm the, done we're I'm done. Okay. <laughs> um, the a frame house and the DNA yeah um, the, oh yeah woo <laughs> Finally, Lance. Oh, the, I, I never know, thought right? you'd ask. <laughs> I don't even know what to do. Never, never got applause before for. I, uh, I'm freaking out. For finding some blood in a house. <laughs> this is life. Um, so, so, I guess, is there an update? Uh, yeah. Because so in in the house in the in the downstairs closet of the house, and we actually have a video of this downstairs closet, which. Uh, uh, after the TV show, it's kind of it's especially creepy now. Beforehand, it wasn't creepy at all, uh, but we but we can play that video. Um, so there there was two um, human being blood samples found on the wall of that closet right there. I um, actually think this might be where Art and I disagree a oh, little bit. Awesome, maybe we do talk about this a lot. Um, you know, I made sure that when we got these results from Lori Baker in Waco, that it was confirmed this was blood. I was like, this isn't spit. This isn't just, like, someone hawking a loogie in the closet. Like, this is blood. And it is. This is human blood. And to me, why is there human blood, two samples in one sample, 
in the closet. And that is very, very bizarre to me. But art, see, art does see it differently. Well, no, I, it would be nice to be able to drill down into that. Um, it's out of our hands now. Um, the state police have it. Um, they've been coordinating with Lori Baker between the two DNA labs. Um, it would have been nice if this stuff was, because there's, there's a, a couple different tests you can do. And originally there was a corrections officer that lived in that house, I yep. think, when you guys went in, yep. right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And he supplied a notarized statement as to what exactly had happened, and apparently he had got some luminol and sprayed the closet, and it lit up like a Christmas tree. Well, that, that doesn't necessarily mean it's human blood, but it gives you an indicator that there's possibly human blood there when you use luminol. So the next test is, I think it's a pheno, phenothaline or phenothaline test. That particular test only tests for human blood. And that's sort of the test we did in the cabin with Dr. Noradine, um, who then recommended. I mean, there was a little bit of. The sample he said, is very small. The and sample is the tiny problem. and degraded. That's the problem. And I. I sorry. sorry, I didn't. No, no. I, it's, it's, it's small, it's degraded. Um, you know, I wish there was a lot of it there because if we could tag it tomorrow, then we might have a homicide case if there's enough. Blood there. The problem is this is very little amount in the sample. But this is, is very what you degraded. and I argue about. This is human blood. Yeah. Whose blood is it? it? Could have been somebody in there putting the nailing the piling on the wall. Two I don't know. Two people at I the mean, same time piling their blood. Like this is what could this be. is where I I'm mean, like. Listen, you know, go around your house and spray some luminol around your house. Yeah, but it's but gonna see be, what happens there. But huh? It's gonna be. So and like well, it's not going to be no, no, blood. No, no, no. I'm not no, bleeding luminol, everywhere. Luminol would would be the first indicator for blood. I think so. where I think where people um, where where the, the the passion about this comes from is the fact that the only reason why we're looking at this house is because the the investigators at the time took cadaver dogs in, and cadaver dogs smelled dead bodies, and you put dead bodies with the blood of two different people underneath the stairs. That's totally. The reason why the the owner contacted us was because he thought it was so weird that it was cocked from the inside. It it was all cocked up on the inside. There was right. nothing else in the house that was cocked from at all. So every crack, on it, like in between the stairs and along the door and the framework, was all cocked up. And and he started looking into it and realized that cadaver dogs had identified. Um, or cadaver dogs had quote unquote gone bonkers in the house, and that's when he decided to move forward with the luminol. No, I I, agree. I think it's interesting. Um, there is one more test, I believe, talking to Dr. Baker from Waco, that can be done that the Department of Defense does. Uh, Department of Defense has a, has a fantastic, absolutely fantastic lab that they use to actually uh, uh, investigate. Um, war crimes overseas, so they find these mass graves and they try to DNA everybody, then figure out who's who. And and uh, there is a test where you can enhance the DNA, but my understanding is, from what the state police have told me, is there's a there's not a full DNA sample of any one particular individual, but it looks like there's two separate people on that particular wood chip. One of them has a partial profile, the other one has a very partial profile. And apparently the alleles is what they call them. I don't want to get too technical here because I'll get myself in trouble because I'm definitely not a DNA expert. But something like what the state police have told me, 50% of the women in the world have these two particular 
portions of DNA. So we've turned it over to the state police. Which is why, though, to just expand a little more, is why we can't just take, or we couldn't, or the police still can't, take Mora's sample, which they have, and just put it next to it. They can't do that. And we did get excited because Lori Baker said to us, if you do put Mora's there, you could rule her out, but we can't rule her in, and we actually couldn't rule her out. Right, because of that 50% issue. Yes. So So it's it's really up to them now to to take the next step. And, you you know, I I don't want to leave everybody with the impression that they, like, open. As much as the investigators wanted to just open their files to us, they couldn't, okay? The attorney general's office wouldn't let them do that. So everything that we're telling you and everything that we put in the show was verbal communication between the state police and us. I mean, the show was not about the prosecutors. It was about the investigators, and I think that's a key part. So they have all the information that we've passed on, and they're moving forward with it, and it's kind of in their ballpark right now. But the DNA is... Pretty interesting. I mean, because even if it's not really Morris, it could be. Yeah. We talk like it could be somebody else. Yeah. Well, I mean, the second we step foot in that house, something bad happened in that house. You yeah. step foot in that house, and you, it's. I mean, look at it. Look at it. <laughs> but like, I mean, something the women bad who have come happened. forward to me on Facebook who have had right. relations with the Moltons don't say anything good. Right. You know, right. there's there's history of abuse and violent things happening. So. What, hap- what happened in that closet. And I mean, that, and, and you know, Moore went missing in 04. You guys got the chips in... 2016. 2016. So you have a huge chain of custody issue going on here. And then we ended up getting the chips from a third person who gave it to, who gave it to us, and that's when we had it tested. So it could never, ever be used in court, but it's a good piece of information for the investigators to have. Right, so this, this is something that you could categorize. You could have two categor- categories right. to it, right? Can't use it in court, but holy shit, it's, this is really goddamn yeah. like yeah. creepy and something that happened. And this that is have, where like, I think the prosecution and the, and the police have a disagreement on, you know, because the prosecution says this is completely useless. We're not right. going to, this is useless. I can't use this. And the police are like, well, who yeah. is it? This, this could is help good. us. Right. Yeah. But once, you know, the, the police get, get past being terrified of walking in this house, <laughs> can't they get new samples from this area? Is, isn't this something that could still happen, or do you know? They could. It I don't, it's been, it's, you know, we all know the place has been renovated at least one time since mm-hmm. then, maybe twice. Yeah, recently. So, yeah. yeah, so, uh, you know, it's, it's unknown what they're going to find there. I don't know. Could they find something? Possibly. Um, the, the the house was built on a concrete slab, and the concrete floor of the closet that had the blood on it that lit up. I'm I'm not like a concrete expert, but I there would be some like porousness, right, in concrete yes. that yeah. if there's that much blood, it would seep down. There are current owners of the house. There's new owners. They're renovating it. So no one in this audience, please do not go up to the A-Frame yeah, house really. and try to talk to people. Uh, so it could come around much. that they could invite people in and take up a chunk of concrete. And but let that be the police. Do not but let yeah. them, exactly. but do that's not go up to the house. <laughs> that was my yeah, over. Thank you, say, can I have a piece of your closet? Yeah, that's not going to Because then we lose chain of custody right, again. So please that, let the yeah, police exactly. do it.
Hey, Drew Scott here, and I'm Jonathan Scott, reminding you that life's better with a home policy from American Family Insurance. They can help you get just the right protection at just the right price and help you save when you bundle home and auto. Kind of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. It'll be just right for you. We love a custom build. American Family Insurance. Insure carefully. Dream fearlessly. Get a quote and find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin.